We've been back in Genesis this week in our Honey, Hammer, and Hope reading plan through the scriptures through the Old Testament, and we've read some incredible stories, and none so incredible as what we read in Genesis chapter 22, one of the most striking and wonderful stories in all the Bible. So turn to that chapter with me, and let's read the first 19 verses, Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19, says this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood and ordered and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. 
Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Now, the first thing to note about getting this story in perspective is that this was a culminating act of faith. This was a climax in his life, not the beginning. As, As you would expect, Abraham grew in faith and character as he followed God's leading. And we've seen this through his story up to this point. We see in his story evidence that he could be a bit of a coward, leading to dishonesty to the extent of endangering his own wife and her chastity. Like when he lied about Sarah being his wife because he feared being on the bad side of Abimelech. He lacked, at times, a moral backbone, which also made him easily swayed by his wife's demands for him to give her a child through his servant, her servant Hagar. And then when that backfired, he allowed even more evil with the banishment of Hagar. He lacked responsibility and principles and faith. But we see that he did not remain like that. He was changed as he walked with God. He grew into a great man. Again and again, God confronted Abraham with his presence and his power and his personality. And Abraham learned to live in that light and in that truth. Abraham grew into a life lived before the face of God. He saw more and more of his life in relation to his Lord. And he came to trust him as his hope and as his shield. This is how God revealed himself to Abraham. He said in Genesis 15, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. In Genesis 17, he calls him to greater faithfulness by saying, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. That's the key. Walk before me. And that's what Abraham learned, to walk before God, so that he could say with Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As we have read Abraham's story, we we see him learn this. And be changed as he becomes a great man of God. In one of my favorite stories from this week, uh, we see an incredible courage arise in him. Right? In this, in this at times cowardly Abraham, we see this incredible courage as he sets off on a rescue mission with only 300 men against forces of four fearsome conquering kings to rescue his nephew Lot. And then after that, we see a, a, his dignity and, and lack of worldly greed and reverence toward God when he refuses the spoils and riches from that victory, lest anyone should think that the king of Sodom made him rich rather than God most high. And then we see he gains a sense of responsibility for others as he pleads for them before God in chapter 18, interceding for the welfare of others. He becomes a man of prayerful and patient faith. And we see that patience as he waits 25 years for a child that God promised him when he was already old to begin with. And he has journeyed, as he has journeyed with God, he's been changed by God. And he gets to the point of chapter 22 that we read, where we see him so completely devoted to God and so confident in God that he's willing to obey God's command even when he calls him to kill his own son. 
The very son that is the fulfillment of God's own promises to Abraham, to, to Abraham, which he waited so long for. God had been shaping Abraham up to this point and even through this event. He did not start out with this kind of faith. God was invested in the faith of Abraham because he would be father Abraham. Father, not just of the nation of Israel, but as the Apostle Paul pointed out, father of those of us who share his faith. Galatians 3, 6 through 9 says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you see, our faith makes us sons of Abraham. We are his spiritual children. And the Apostle Paul ends that chapter of Galatians with this verse, verse 29, which says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul is not just reinterpreting or spiritualizing the covenant with Abraham either. There's one more important thing to point out from Galatians 3. The Apostle goes back to Genesis 17 and he examines the language and the original wording and draws our attention to the fact that in the Abrahamic covenant, God only had one particular child in mind when he promised Abraham a seed. In Galatians 3.16, Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is the promised offspring. He is the one descendant of Abraham through whom all the nations will be blessed. We are beneficiaries of that blessing. And we are so truly united to Jesus through our faith in him that we too are children of Abraham. Our faith is of the same nature as Abraham's own, our father. He is our father. And the author of Hebrews points this out when he says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham knew his inheritance was something eternal. He hoped with a hope like our hope. What I'm getting at is an answer to a question many of us may have when we come to this text. Why the test? Why would God test Abraham in this way and test his faith? And one of the main answers must be because Abraham's faith was precious to God. It was pivotal in a profound sense. It was the pivot point of redemptive history. God was invested in the faith of Abraham and cared about growing and strengthening his faith. It was valuable to God. God could have kept him in Ur of the Chaldeans. God could have given him Isaac at the first promise rather than waiting a quarter century. God could have never given him such a radical test as we've read here with the call to sacrifice the son that he promised to him. But God was establishing him as a fountainhead of faith for his promised people, for his people. And, and, and we share his faith. And your faith 
is just as valuable to God as Abraham's. More valuable than your immediate gratification. It's more valuable than your ambitions or your comfort. He cares more about your faith than he cares about your personal preferences or opinions. And he will work to grow your faith. And you too will change. You will be brought out of the pit of moral cowardice and into a place of courage and wisdom. You will go from shirking responsibility and shrinking back into welcoming responsibility, not only for yourself, but for others, interceding for them before God. And he will test you. He will test your faith. And like Abraham, he will mold you into humility and patience because God will lead you to lean on him. This is his plan for your life. This is his plan for your life. That you come to live every moment before him. Like he said to Abraham, walk before me. He meant live every moment as though before him. And he wants this because he wants to be your shield. He wants to be your inheritance as he was for Abraham. And this wasn't just a test of Abraham's faith either. This was a test of Isaac's faith. If you think about it, I remember when I realized this several years ago that Isaac was probably a teenager when this event took place. And thinking of him, experiencing this at that age fascinated me and captured my imagination. So I wrote a short story about it from his perspective. And I want to share that with you now in hopes that it will help you feel this event more vividly as it has for me. So here it goes. Isaac was burning with curiosity. It had been an odd and somber three-day journey. All he knew that was, was that where they were going, where they were going to worship God with a burnt offering. But so many other aspects were confusing. His father woke him up very early in, in the morning and watched him, he watched him cut wood for himself and saddle his own donkey, both tasks he would usually have a servant do. And then there was the fact that they had to travel so far to do this act of worship. They had given burnt offerings to the Lord before and never had to travel this far. They didn't even bring a lamb to sacrifice. And on top of everything else, his father seemed incredibly despondent and downcast which seems strange to Isaac considering God had just spoken to him, something that usually brought such joy to Abraham when he would tell Isaac of stories of how this happened in the past. He didn't know what was going on, but he didn't want to overstep or disturb his father even further, so by asking too many questions. And they finally arrived in Moriah, and they stopped at the foot of a mountain. And Abraham unloaded the wood and put it on Isaac's back to carry, and Abraham carried the fire and the knife. And when they had walked some distance from the young men that they brought with them, Isaac finally decided to ask Abraham one of the questions that had been bothering him most in this trip. He said, Father, here I am, my son, replied Abraham, still looking ahead. Isaac continued, we have the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham turned to look at him for a moment and then stopped walking. Isaac stopped too. 
He couldn't tell what emotion he was seeing in his father's face, but it seemed intense. Abraham put his hand on Isaac's shoulder and said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Isaac smiled and nodded, and they began walking again. This was exciting for him because he always loved hearing about his father's interactions with the Lord. As a young boy, he must have had his father tell the story about the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch a hundred times. And the visit from the angels who saved cousin Lot from the destruction of Sodom was another one of his favorites. He loved hearing about how God changed both of his parents' names and even chose Isaac's name before he was born. And his favorite part about all these stories was that Abraham was always careful to point out that they involved a promise about Isaac. This, of course, made them infinitely more interesting to him. He was the child of promise, miraculously born to a mother who couldn't have children. And this had always excited and humbled him. He had heard all these incredible stories about the Lord, and he worshipped him with his parents. But he never experienced his direct intervention in his life the ways his father had always talked about. But now he would. He had always wondered what the Lord's voice sounded like. And he thought, hopefully, he speaks to us when he provides this sacrifice. He walked past a dense thicket and realized he was already at the top of the mountain. He turned back and saw his father was quite far behind him. In his excitement and his distraction, he, in thought, he had nearly forgotten about the heavy load he was carrying and walked very quickly. When Abraham finally caught up to him, he helped him unload the wood and set down the knife and fire and took a breath and said, Listen, my son. As his father finally told him what was really going on, the smile Isaac had been wearing for the last several moments slowly faded away. He was stunned. When Abraham finished telling him what God had said and what needed to happen next, he turned to start preparing the altar. And Isaac mindlessly started to help him pile the stones and lay the wood as he always did, but his father stopped him, putting his bony hand on Isaac's chest, and then solemnly went back to work. As he idly watched Abraham build the altar, his mind raced as he struggled to make sense of this. He didn't want to die. Why would God do this? Didn't God promise that he would be the one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed? The Lord always kept his promises. Isaac didn't understand how this could be. He continued to stand there while his father began to bind him. And for the first time in his life, he noticed how old his father looked. Maybe it was the somber weight of the situation coming to bear on his face, or maybe it was because for a split second, the question of whether or not he could overpower his father and escape went through his mind. He banished the thought immediately, but even opening that door for a second was long enough to let reality sneak in and push out his youthful perceptions of his father, replacing them with a lasting realization of just how frail his 110-year-old father really was. Isaac was shaking with nerves, and Abraham noticed. He grabbed Isaac's shoulders firmly, looked deeply into his eyes, and said, We can trust him. Isaac thought those words of reassurance were probably as much for his father as they were for him. Either way, they were exactly what he needed to hear. He remembered his father's story of being called out of Ur and hoping he would have a moment like that someday. He remembered how as a young boy, when he was told the story of his birth, he scolded his mother for not trusting God's promise. And now he realized just how hard it could be. He nodded at his father with fresh resolve, and they laid him on the altar. 
Isaac closed his eyes and after a moment clenched them even tighter as he scrunched up his face and clenched his fists and tensed every other muscle in his body with anxious anticipation of his father's knife. And then, Abraham. There came a clear, strong voice, so startling he nearly yelped. Isaac opened his eyes as the voice called again, Abraham. He saw the knife still being held above his body, and then he caught his father's eyes as Abraham replied with a crack in his voice, Here I am. The angel of the Lord said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Isaac's eyes widened and breath filled his lungs as he realized he had been holding it for the last several moments. He felt relief rush through his whole body and spirit. He didn't have to die. And not only that, but he finally got to hear the voice from heaven as it was even more incredible than he had ever imagined. And then he noticed something moving out of the corner of his eye. He looked over and saw a ram struggling to remove its horns from the thicket. Abraham cut Isaac loose and offered the ram on the altar instead of him. As he stood there watching the beast burn in his place, he was filled with a profound sense of gratitude. His father put his arm around him and said, We'll name this place, The Lord Will Provide. Isaac's eyes followed the smoke as it rose up to heaven, and the voice came again. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Isaac knew this promise, but he had never heard it like this before. He looked over at his father who was looking back at him with a knowing look and a smile that said, just like I told you. And when they finally worshiped, finished worshiping there together, they returned home. And this was, in this story, this was an incredible act of faith on behalf of both Abraham and Isaac. Already, we see Abraham's faith spreading, right? Isaac inheriting this faith. And what they knew was that God always kept his promises. The author of Hebrews gives us more insight into what Abraham was thinking when he went to do this. Hebrews eleven seventeen says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see what that's saying? Abraham knew that God had promises through Isaac yet to be fulfilled, and so he assumed that God would bring him back to life after he sacrificed him. That's what he thought going in. And the author of Hebrews says that in his in his own mind, he did receive him back from the dead because he was so certain that he would obey God and sacrifice his beloved son. Our familiarity with this story should not make us forget how radical this obedience is. How heartrending. Today is my son's third birthday. 
my only son, whom I love, turns three today. My Wallace Joy. And as I prepared this message, I have tried to put myself in Abraham's shoes. I've thought hard about what it would be like if God called me to sacrifice Wally. And it is almost impossible for me to even fit my mind into that shape, to even think about it. It's unfathomable to me to think about binding him and stabbing him and burning him. But this is what Abraham was prepared to do. And this is what Isaac was prepared to endure. And how? How did they face such a thing? Because they knew God always keeps his promises. And they trusted him. And they used their imaginations for how he could keep his promises. Right? They were wrong about what God actually ended up doing. But they weren't wrong to trust him. Because as Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. Unless we run away with that phrase, what exactly is it that Abraham is confident the Lord will provide? What did he provide? He provided a substitute. He provided a way to keep his promises to Abraham. He provided what Abraham needed to fulfill his obedience and worship God with gratitude. And we can have this same confidence. He will always provide what is necessary for him to keep his promises. That's what he will provide. He will always provide what you need to obey him. He will always provide what you need to worship him. And he may surprise you with the way he does it and with when he does it, as happened to Abraham. But I think Abraham's example is one to follow. When he faced this call to sacrifice Isaac, he thought of the promises regarding Isaac. And he paired this, his faith with reason and imagination. And he thought that God would raise Isaac from the dead. And I think we should follow his example. Use your imagination. You may not know what God will do. And you shouldn't try to lock him into anything in your heart. But it's okay to think of what he could do without discounting any options. I often tell people you can't fight something with nothing. When fears assail you, you can't just wish them away. When temptations arise, you can't just will them into vanishing. You need to fill your heart and your mind with something greater than them. With promises and hopes and wonder at what God has done and what God will do or could do. But this story was more than just a test of Abraham's faith. It was also a foreshadowing of what God's uh, promise to Abraham is going to lead to. This story's wonderful combination of elements proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. This substitutionary sacrifice that we see. A father willing to give up his only son. An offspring in whom the whole world will find blessing. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, at least the elements of it. But they do come together in the gospel in an incredible way. To start with the most significant similarity, a father willing to sacrifice his son. 
Christ's Father willingly sacrificed him. Listen again to how God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. This should remind you of how God talked about Jesus. At his baptism, he said, this is my beloved son. John 3.16 says, he is his only son. And remember that because God is omniscient and eternal, he sees these two events simultaneously. They're not separated and distant from each other like they are to us. When God calls Abraham, who is the forefather of his incarnate son, when he calls him to sacrifice his only son whom he loves, he says that in full view of when he would sacrifice his only son whom he loves. And if you wonder at me saying the father sacrificed Jesus, let me read you some passages along those lines. Romans 8.32 says, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Isaiah 53 says that he was smitten by God in verse 4. And then in verse 10, it says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Romans 3.25 says, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Christ's death was the Father's doing. Just as Abraham lifted the knife over the chest of his son, Isaac, but then spared his son because there was a ram in the thicket, so God the Father lifted his knife over the chest of his own son, Jesus. But he did not spare him. And this leads to that second element of the gospel in this story, substitutionary sacrifice. That ram in the thicket, served as the sacrifice instead of Isaac, meaning it died and Isaac didn't. But in the gospel, the son dies. There's no ram. This is because he is the ram. He is the substitute. He died in our place that we might live. Again, let me point you to some scriptures. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. God did not spare his own son because he wanted to bring us to himself. And this was the only way. The only way that he could spare us and still be righteous and holy. Because the, the grave guilt of our sin, the cursed evil of our rebellion leads inescapably to damnation and wrath of God. And yet God's love made a way. His son, his only son, whom he loves, is the way. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ bore in his body on the tree all of your corruption and condemnation, all your guilt, all your punishment, so that you might be with God without fear, without shame, so that you might stand before him completely cleansed, utterly forgiven, welcomed, accepted as a, as a son, as his own son. 
whom he loves. And another reason why I love reflecting on Genesis 22 from Isaac's perspective is that is that thought that he willingly submitted himself to be sacrificed as well. And I know that's a little bit of a speculation, but it does point to a firm and beautiful fact with no speculation at all, which is that though God the Father put forth Christ as an atoning sacrifice, Christ also put himself forth as such a sacrifice for you. He willingly died for you. And Jesus himself said in John 10, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I, it is, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 1 John 3, he laid down his life for us. 1 Timothy 2, he gave himself as a ransom for all. I could go on and on. He did not do this grudgingly or against his will. He was not a victim. He was a volunteer. He was not ignorant either of what he would endure. And he was completely within his rights and abilities to not endure it. Yet he did. And we know this from the accounts in the Garden of Gethsemane. There, was, there he was sweating blood, with, so burdened by the thought of what he would endure because he knew the horrors of the cross even better than we do. And, and he steps up to those who are, who are searching for him. You remember they come and they come looking for him. And what does he do? With his voice, he knocks down all the soldiers, showing that he was not a victim or a helpless martyr. He was in control. And he did it for you, to redeem you, to purify you, to save you from your sin and restore you to a relationship with God. Titus 2 says he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And this leads to the third element of the story, the offspring of Abraham in whom the world would find blessing. As the Apostle Paul pointed out, Jesus Christ is that offspring because through his death, he redeemed people from every tribe, nation, tongue, people, and he purified for himself a people for his own possession. That through our faith, faith, the faith of the same nature as Abraham, Faith that says, you, God, are my God, and you are my only hope. You are my shield. You alone can provide a way of salvation, and you have. In the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, that through that faith, that kind of faith, we are united to that Savior, to God's beloved Son. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, we believe on Christ, and it is his righteousness is counted to us. And we indeed are blessed, right? When he promised Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed, we are blessed. We are experiencing that blessing. 
Blessed beyond our wildest imaginations. I read you the first part of Romans 8 earlier to show you God's purposeful part in the death of Christ, but I didn't mention the second part of that verse, and now's the time. The full verse says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's what I read you before, but now he says, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see what that's saying? God's giving of his own son for us is the foundation of unspeakable blessings. Because if he's willing to do that, then what, is he, what else is he willing to give us? We have promises of pleasure forevermore at his right hand. When you are united to Christ by faith, you are united to all that is in Christ. You you don't just get a part of Christ. You receive the full life and righteousness of Christ. You become a co-heir with him. And all that belongs to him belongs to you. So believe on Christ. Receive his life today. And be blessed forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so humbled and awed that you would give your own son for us, that you would not spare him so that you could spare us. I pray that we never take that for granted. And I pray that you give us faith faith like our father Abraham that we would that we would be live our whole lives before your face that we would walk before you and be blameless that we would live trusting you because you always keep your promises I pray you fill our hearts and minds our reason our imaginations with confidence in you. We see, even when we don't know what you're doing, like we sang earlier, we know what you've done. And what you've done is give your own son to save us. I pray that that would fill us with great faith, even this week. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.